back in April, we began this series entitled, Who Is This Man? And today, uh, we come to the end of it. As in my last series, I had to jettison a couple of the messages that I wanted to do in this series because we just had to address some other things that I thought were really, really important and really urgent. But today, uh, we, we finish up the series. But looking back, uh, we found uh, several things about the, this man. Who is this man? We found out that he was a sacred friend. Not, not like a Facebook friend, uh, different than that. He's a friend who always lets you in, in spite of everything there is to know about you, and never turns you out. We found out in this series that he's a relentless lover of his creations. When he looks at you, he sees all the stuff you wish you could hide, and he loves you still. Even Peter, remember the apostle, he denied he even knew Jesus in his greatest hour of need, and Jesus received him back fully. When you know that you are loved by God, it changes who you are. It's the key to everything. When we cannot or will not return that love, he continues to express it. We found out in this series that he's a provocative teacher. Provocative people stir things up, but Jesus wasn't provocative merely to be provocative and to make waves. He was provocative in his teaching because he wanted us to take real stock in where we are and where we're heading. Since he knew that when we order our loves and order our lives correctly, we'll live a life of glory and a life of significance. Isn't that what we want? So often our loves are misplaced, so the, the wrong thing powers our lives. And when we rightly order our loves, though, he offers us a better way to live and the only way to die. We've talked about in this series how we, we all want to be approved, don't we? We all do. We all want someone to say, good job. But to, the, to be approved by God, we need not only an external kind of righteousness, which looks good to men and looks good on this earth, but an internal righteousness that only God, through Christ's atoning sacrifice of his life for us, can give. Starts with us seeing our own sinfulness and humbly asking for mercy. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice, those who ask for mercy receive mercy. And we stand approved by God. And in a world where it seems everybody lies to you, don't you feel like that sometimes that nobody's telling the truth? <laughs> we, it's such a rare commodity. Jesus, though we saw, is a truthful revealer. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, from, in John chapter 14. Our attitude towards God's truth determines who we are and where we're heading. Jesus said, I have the answers. Trust in me for the truth. We found out that this Jesus is a, a grace giver, a giver of grace. So when the light, Jesus, exposes our sin, we have a choice. We either remain in the darkness or repent and receive grace, always grace. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to the world so that it might be saved. So this morning, as we come to the end of the series, I want to ask, I want to ask you one question. Here's the question. Have you ever noticed how sometimes a single snapshot, a movement frozen in time, tells a story better sometimes in 10,000 words of text? I like writing, but a lot of times, you know what, just seeing a picture is all we need. Neil Armstrong, standing on the moon, I remember when I was 13 years old, along with 500 billion people, 500 million people who were watching, they all said the same thing, anything's possible. 
Those firemen after 9-11, remember in the ashes of the Twin Towers? We saw that picture. And, and basically that picture said, you haven't beaten us. We're going to be back. And then recently, a man dying before our eyes, literally gasping for life, and it was taken away from him. Folks, pictures tell a story, and sometimes a snapshot, better than anything else, tells us what's, what the story is. And then there's that picture in Mark chapter 10, the picture of Jesus with the children. Remember it? It was just read for us. And in Mark chapter 10, uh, in the Bible's New Testament, there's a short four-verse narrative that perhaps more than any other lets us get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. At that point, Jesus was very, very popular, and his ministry was kind of just on the upswing, and he was drawing enormous crowds. And one day, a number of people in the crowd brought to him their children so that this young, esteemed rabbi would be able to put his hands on them and bless the children, bless their children. Now, that may seem trivial, but for them, it was really, really important. I'll bet some of us could, could relate to that and could understand that. I, I remember uh, when, when the Pope was in uh, the United States back, back in Giant Stadium years ago, whenever, he, it doesn't even have to be then, whenever he gets out of his Pope-mobile and there's a crowd, people don't hold up to a piece of paper to get an autograph. What do they hold up? They hold up their kids to him because they want him to bless them because they think what they're doing is really good for their kids. That's what parents do. Anyway, as these parents were, were holding out their children for Jesus to bless them, his disciples, who were the final barrier between them and Jesus, started barking at the parents. And I don't know exactly what they said, but I could read a little bit between the lines. I mean, they probably saw them coming. He says, where are you going? What are you doing? Jesus is very important, folks. His time's limited. He can't stop to bless your children. He has sermons to preach. He has people to see, people to heal. He's supposed to be in Jerusalem this Friday. Oh, wait a minute. Who's that? Look, yeah, they can see. Kids, step aside. I think I see members of the Sanhedrin coming this way. I know Jesus wants to talk to them. I don't know how it went. Maybe it went like that, but it was something similar. Look, they may have been simple fishermen, but they weren't stupid men. On your best day, you would never be able to convince them that anyone was going to build anything with children. I mean, children are basically helpless. Up until a certain age, they need everything done for them. Leave a child to fend for herself and see how long she lasts. You know, your two-year-old still needs to be potty trained. Your eight-year-old can't get through a math assignment without mom's help. Your 13-year-old, you know, in, in, in recent days, uh, isn't emotionally strong enough to make it through the evening hours without generous amounts of stroking encouragement from mom and dad. And your 14-year-old would starve to death if generous meals were not prepared for him on a regular basis. Well, maybe not starve to death, but you know what I mean. It'd be tough. <laughs> Bottom line is, kids are pretty helpless creatures. They only slowly come to self-sufficiency. You certainly wouldn't want to bet the rent money that, you know, you could go on and go out and build something of significance with children. You'd never want to do that. Children are also basically powerless. That's true of all children. Children in our society, they can't vote, they can't sign contracts, they, they, they can't marry, they can't run for political office, they can't serve in the military, they can't make any major purchases. We know that. 
They have no power to get things done. That's left to the financial guys, to the political people, to the woman whose husband left her $13 million, God rest his soul, right? Children are kind of like the Queen of England, as I was thinking about it. They, they have a nice title. They're loved. They're respected. They're nice to be around. It's great to have your picture taken with them. But when push comes to shove, they really have no muscle to get anything done. England has a prime minister and a House of Commons for that. What's more, on the surface, children just seem to take. They take, they take, they take. They take that space you had dreams of making into an office, a sanctuary, like Superman's Fortress of Solitude, right? A place away from the world. And you had to make it into a playroom with video games and loud music and stuff like that. They take liberal portions of your paycheck with music lessons and ballet and sports equipment. They consume gobs of your most valuable commodity, your time. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I know you love your children. I love my children. I'm passionate about my grandchildren. But you don't build kingdoms with little children. You don't start building a doghouse with them today if you want to get it done before Labor Day. You just don't. Yet, listen, they were important to Jesus. Really important. More than that, there was something about them that made them perfect for kingdom building. There was something about them that if we don't have, we'll never be partners in building the kingdom of God. So, here they come clamoring for Jesus, and the disciples look around, and they, they're kind of forming you know, a, a human chain. They, they're putting their arms together, a human barrier. And in Mark chapter 14, it says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Anasteo, literally the Greek word means much grief. It's a, it's a grief brought about by a seeming lack of understanding on the part of someone. They don't get it. And somehow, because they don't get it, it hurts you. This past week, I was speaking to an African-American pastor, a dear friend of mine, not Doug Adams, and we were talking about what's going on in the country, and he started telling me about uh, his own frustration with his own denomination. His denomination is mostly white, and the leadership is mostly white. Good people. I would say great people. He would say great people. Solid, theologically. They've been a huge help to him personally. They've been a huge help to his church. And yet, he said to me, for the past 19 years, I've been trying to get them to understand some of the unique challenges that I, as a black man, have and our church members have. And, and you know, trying to get the denomination to start addressing some of the issues biblically, but they grow tired quickly, and we never seem to get things done, he said to me. And then he said, I don't think they get it. And I picked up in the tone of his voice, not anger, a bit of exasperation, yes, but not true anger, but mostly sadness and a sort of, a sort of grief. So Jesus sees this scene unfolding right before his eyes, and he says, wait a minute, stop, no. You, don't, you guys don't know what you're doing. I know you don't mean to, but you're hurting me by this spectacle. What's wrong with you guys? Why don't you, you know, get it? You don't understand that the materials that these children are bringing 
are going to be used to build my kingdom. Now, the word indignant that he uses in that verse is only used a few times in the New Testament, I found out. Just a, few, a handful of times. But one of the places that it is used is a few verses below this text when, when uh, James and John requested that Jesus, uh, of Jesus, that they occupy his two top cabinets, cabinet posts when his soon-to-be-established Jesus administration began. Could you imagine? Hey, make me right, make me left, make us the two top lieutenants. Could you imagine these guys? And it says that the other disciples, upon their request, were, same word, they were, they were cut. Verse 41 says, when, when the ten heard about this, they became, there it is, indignant with James and John. They were grieved. How could you? What's wrong with you guys? Don't you understand what, what, what you just did is so hurtful and shows such a disregard for the way things should be? He said to them in verse 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus wanted the children to come to him because he knew that they had something that would be required of anyone wanting to be a kingdom member and a kingdom builder. And his guys didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And it was just wrong for them to hold the little children back. By doing so, they just showed they didn't get it. So Jesus called the children to himself. Why? Well, it was a couple of things. There was a deep theological reason, and there was a deep practical reason why he did, why he extended himself to them. And you got to look a little bit further down the chapter to see that. The theological reason why he came was simply this, folks, to buy them back, to buy us back. Go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Things were heating up with the aforementioned indignation of the ten disciples. They're, they're kind of going at each other. And Jesus steps in to break up the fight. And he says this. He said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom. Now, I remember years ago uh, watching this movie called Ransom. It was uh, Mel Gibson and uh, Rene Rousseau with the parents, and their son had been kidnapped. He was a rich guy. His son was kidnapped, and the story revolves around you know whether and whether he was going to pay a ransom or how he was going to pay the ransom to get their son back. And the title of the movie said really everything. It said it all. That is what we think about when we hear the word ransom. Someone gets kidnapped and is held until money is paid out. But the word back then to Jesus' audience meant something else. Back then, the word was the price you paid to bring a soldier who had been taken as a prisoner of war and made a slave. That was a price you paid to get him free, to get him back home. It was the price you paid to bring him home out of that captivity. Now, this was a critical truth for them to see and understand. Jesus knew that. It was critical for them to see why he was going to have to die. Jesus is saying that there is a payment to be made, me, he's saying. There is a condition to be met, my death, for your liberation from the payment due your sin. Now, when you think about this whole idea of substitutionary death, I know I've talked to people. Do you ever sit back and just say to yourself, I mean, what is this whole deal about? The substitutionary death thing. I mean, who's making the rules? I assume it's God. 
And if he's making the rules and, and can do whatever he wants to do, he is God, why can't he just say, look, let, let's just forget about this. I forgive you. Let's make nice. Why can't he just do that? I mean, what is this about human sacrifice? Why does he seem to need to be appeased by human sacrifice? It, it sounds like something out of the, yeah, you know, the Mesoamerican civilizations, the Mayans or the Aztecs, who sacrificed tens of thousands of living victims to appease their idols, to appease their gods. Now, let me, let me take a quick step back in addressing this concern. We, all of us generally, have a problem of not punishing wrongdoers. We have a problem when we see obvious wrong and evil and it goes unpunished. We have this sense of justice, which I believe strongly is a reflection of God's own justice, that says if someone backs up into my car in the parking lot of the shop right and does $2,200 worth of damage, they should pay for it. For me to stand there with my shopping cart, watching the whole thing happen, could you imagine? You're right in front of your eyes, and then say, don't worry about it. Now, number one, that would, be very, that would be amazing of you. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're sitting home going, yeah, I've done that. But here's the truth. Although you would be truly an amazing person to do that, you would not erase the damage done to your car. There's still a cost to be paid. You say, yeah, well, it's drivable. I'm not going to go get it repaired, but it brings down the value of your car. And if you go to sell it, you won't get as much as you would if, if the accident never occurred. And you know that the guy, whoever you're unloading it to, they're looking at it and they're figuring, well, I'm going to get this fixed. It's going to cost this. That's why he's asking for a low price. He's, he's going to get it fixed, right? But listen, the point is this. I don't get lost in that. The point is this. There would still be a cost. Somebody would still have to pay for the damage done. If you said, don't worry about it, which would be very, very nice of you, much nicer than me, you, in effect, would also be saying, I'm going to pay for it. Here's the truth. Every wrong has a cost. Every wrong does damage. And folks, all damage has got to be paid for. Either he pays for the repairs to the car or somebody else pays for the car or you, know, or, or you pay for the, the damage for the car. Somebody's paying. Somebody bears the cost. The cost doesn't evaporate into the air. There's no such thing as, as, as a wrong that's not paid for. Forgiveness means bearing the cost. And spiritually speaking, the Bible says when the cost is paid, you go free. See, we understand that. It's simple justice. How much more does God understand that? If seeing the guy smash into our car and the damage it causes is a problem for us, how much more is it a problem for God? If we understand that someone must pay, then what must it be for God? We have a sense of justice, a morsel of justice in us, which makes it hard to forgive sometimes. But with God, you have real true justice. And if we say, the car, doesn't matter. You know, hit the car, miss the car, whatever, it's all the same. Then we're really saying that there's no difference between good and evil. If God could just let it go, how could we ever say that this thing over here is good, but this thing over here needs to be punished? In other words, it's a huge problem. We say if, it, if, if he were a loving God, he would just forgive but there's the problem of payment. Somebody's got to pay for the damage. So what did he do? Well, he came to pay the cost of the damage himself. 
Jesus Christ died to pay the damage that our sins brought to our relationship with him and to free our hearts. If you say, well, God should just forgive, you've created a God who's more shallow than you, more one-dimensional than you ever uh, could be. Here is what you have in the cross. Somebody, somebody wrote this, and I wrote it down. He said, uh, a God who just forgives is not a holy God. A God who won't forgive is not a loving God. A God who can't forgive is not a wise God. But in the cross, we find absolute wisdom and love and holiness all fulfilled and all satisfied at once. He satisfied the holy love of God and opened the way for relationship with him. Amen. Theologically speaking, Jesus came as a ransom to pay for the damage that sin had done to our relationship with a just and a holy God and to set us free. You gotta know that. These little children, seemingly innocent little children, still carried inside of them the same poisoned bloodline that soon would have them arguing with each other, saying who's first and who's better, and making all kinds of earthly distinctions and judgments. But they wanted Jesus. They trusted Jesus. They didn't understand it all perfectly, but they were willing to put themselves into his hands. So they went to him. They went right up to him. And in doing so, they did something that is absolutely imperative if you want to be saved and if you want to be part of his movement. They put their implicit trust and faith in this ransom payer. They put trust in this Savior. And Jesus was telling his disciples, don't you dare become a hindrance to these children coming to me. I know you think you're helping, but here's the theological reason why they must come. And if you want to be part of my kingdom, you must come. But there was also a practical reason why he extended himself to them. A very practical reason. The practical reason why he came was to draw near to them. On January 13th, 1982... Air Florida Flight 90 smashed nose first into the rock-solid ice covering of the Potomac River just outside of Washington, D.C. Some of you may remember this. The horrified on onlookers, it seemed impossible that anyone could be alive inside the mangled steel carcass, slowly vanishing into the frigid water. But as people watched, one by one, six survivors gasped themselves to the surface and, and, and grabbed desperately at the only piece that was, you could still see, the, plane, the tail of the plane. They'd have to swim up past their dead friends, past their seatmates, and in a couple of cases, past spouses to escape. And they knew that unless they were pulled out really fast, they'd soon be sinking back down under the water, and they'd be joining them. Just hanging out was agony. The six survivors had fractured arms, shattered legs, and their hands were freezing at the claws that were slipping from the wet steel. Help us, they cried. Help us. They screamed. We're going to die out here. They were only 40 yards or so from the Virginia shoreline, but they were surrounded by an Arctic nightmare of jagged ice. Pushing a rescue boat into those shards would have been suicide. Piloting a chopper initially into the whipping snowstorm would have been nearly as risky. That's what brought the plane down in the first place. 
would-be rescuers yanked ladders frantically off utility trucks. They tried stretching them across the ice. They, they knotted scarves and fan belts from cars into makeshift ropes. They dangled them from the 14th Street Bridge. One man even bravely dog-paddled through the ice chunks and hauling a, a, a jury-rigged rescue rope around him. He couldn't get close and was nearly unconscious by the time he was dragged back on shore himself. News cameramen watched helplessly from the bridge. They, they recorded the entire disaster for the rest of the world to see. There appeared absolutely no way, no way to reach the survivors in the water. 20 minutes after the crash, the sun was going down and no one had been able to reach the six survivors. They were literally doomed. Then suddenly, miraculously, a rescue chopper came whisking across the darkening sky and it dropped a life ring right, right into the, the, the hands of one of the survivors who was still holding on to the tail section and, and, and plucked him from the water. The next person to receive the ring, instead of hanging on to it, handed it to someone right next to him. The chopper lofted her, lifted her off to safety, and, and, and then wheeled back again. And once again, they lowered the ring. And once again, the unidentified man gave it to someone else. And then it came back again, and he gave it to yet another person. And one last time, the chopper returned, but the man in the water had vanished beneath the ice. The passenger who had survived the crash and had repeatedly given up the rescue line to other survivors before drowning was later identified as a 46-year-old bank examiner from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta by the name of Arlen D. Williams, Jr. Arlen Williams died substituting himself giving them his place of deliverance. He took the destruction that was coming upon them. He gave them his rescue. He set them free from the claws of death. Every time he was offered a place of salvation, he gave it to someone else. All the people who were saved were saved right there and then by him. If I understand the reason where a sacrifice is made. And I understand that that sacrifice was for me. Folks, I got to tell you, it really makes a difference. Look, listen, the Bible says that our problem is not a self-esteem problem like some people are telling us. It's alienation from God. That, you know, it, the, he is the ground of our existence. We've been separated from him. The story of the, the cross, a true story of ransom paid, is our story. And it should change us. The practical reason why he came is that it brings us near. Most religions will tell you that God loves you, but only Christianity proves it with a loving, just God who himself paid the price, an ultimate price, and paid the ultimate cost. When we draw near and trust him, the Bible says we're saved. Why does the story of Arlen D. Williams Jr. move us? Because it is the most morally beautiful thing we know. It just takes you, it just grips your heart when I was reading it this week. To know that God loves us that much, that we mean that much to him, that we are that significant, changes everything. He gave his life in the place of many. That is why he came. You know what? 
I think children can understand that. Jesus knew they could. And he knew that you would have to become like a little child who may not understand everything, but who are wise enough to recognize and respond to love when they see it. Wise enough to understand. If they came to him, he would save them. There are things about a child that you don't want to be. But like a child, God calls us to be spiritually like innocent like them children are dependent you have to feel helpless you have to uh, 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 not only believe he died for you but to do that you need to know you can't save yourself you can't rely on anything that you have done children never come negotiating they simply come and say daddy when we draw near and trust him we can be saved it is the only way we can be saved The cross shows you that you are valued by God. Jesus rebuked his disciples because he knew that they didn't understand that the kingdom of heaven is filled with ones such as the little children who come helpless and powerless and fully dependent on him. But listen, folks, the decision is yours. No one could make it for you. You need to draw near to him who died for you so that we can be his. You can be saved, but you have to draw near to him.